Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. I've worked at the temple for about the past decade now, so I can really attest to the quality of the work they do. They're located in the Peruvian Amazon, outside the city of Iquitos, in the in the jungle there. And they run 12-day workshops in which they have six different ceremonies. Uh, predominantly, they're working with the plant medicine ayahuasca, although they're really also working with the whole pharmacopoeia of plants that are in the jungle. Uh, they work within a lineage of a group of people called the Shipibo people, who have a really long history of working with these plants. Um, they're working with four different uh, healers, doctors, curanderos within each ceremony. There's two to three facilitators. Uh, there's uh, pre-ceremony yoga classes. There's an amazing support staff, integration team, massage therapists, bone doctors. So really just an amazing place to go to, to really go deeply into this world of plant medicine. Uh, they've been reopened now since August of this year, and uh, if you'd like more information about them, about their retreat schedule, working with them, you can check out their website at templeofthewayoflight.org, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, also, myself and my colleague Marav Artsy are continuing to run dietas uh, here in the Sacred Valley and elsewhere. Um I guess when this comes out, uh, probably the next one will be running because uh, we're taking a little bit of a break over the holidays. We'll be in February uh, of next year in the Sacred Valley. We'll also be in New York again uh, next summer. And that's a really amazing opportunity to go really deeply into this world of plants and the tradition we were trained in uh, and also kind of working with the, the different skills we've been uh, collaborating with and, and coming together to work with. And it's a really beautiful opportunity to go into a very deep process and experience the, the, the magic, the healing, the, the teaching that a lot of these plants have to offer. Um, if you'd like more information about that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and also Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com. My guest for today's show is Laura Dawn. Uh, I had known about Laura through a few different ways. She was also on my buddy Mike from Mike Adelic's podcast, uh, and I really enjoyed that conversation. And uh, uh, she and her team reached out to me, and we set up this interview, and uh, it was really good. She does work with uh, microdosing of um, ayahuasca. And um, she does something called psychedelic leadership, where she takes a lot of these principles and fundamentals of working with plant medicine and trying to bring it out to a, a larger audience and really focusing on this idea of leadership. So we had a really interesting conversation. We talked about that, about plant medicine, uh, reciprocity, uh, integrative processes. So it was a really nice conversation. I think you all will enjoy it. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really great way. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up, uh, and even a dollar is a really big support. Um, there's different tiers you can sign up for, and then uh, with that, also kind of working on this idea of reciprocity, there's also some added benefits uh, that you get back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it, uh, and if you're able to to do that, I would greatly appreciate that as well. 
Uh, also, now with YouTube, there's the ability to join the channel, offering similar benefits. Um, and if you're not able to do that, uh, subscribing to the show is a really big help. Going on the YouTube channel, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, following the show, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's also a really big help. So I think that's it for the intro, and without further ado, here is my conversation with Laura Dawn. I'm running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out from the maze today. I'm running out from the maze. Running up from the maze, run out of the maze today. Seems like that's a new Zoom feature, which is actually probably yes. pretty smart to tell people it's actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Um, so yeah, we we were talking a little bit before we started, uh, but you had been recommended to me by a couple of people. And then uh, I believe your assistant reached out to me. And um, so, yeah, it seemed like a really good fit. And you were also, uh, I think how maybe I originally found out about you is you were on my buddy Mike's podcast for Mike Adelic. Oh, um, yes. He's a really good friend of mine. I've been on his show a couple of times and uh, I've interviewed him. Um, so, yeah, it's it's nice to see you. And um you were also saying this is your second podcast of the day, so hopefully we don't repeat too much. But as always, it's nice just to kind of start with a little bit of background. Uh, you know, some of the viewers may be familiar with you. I'd imagine others aren't. So maybe if you can just start and, and tell a little bit about, uh, you know, it's always the big question, who you are, your story, and, and what got you into the, this line of work and, and to where you are now. Right. Well, as soon as we start, so I'll just honor this land that I'm on and there's, you know, I'm on 10 acres of land and just, you know, want to honor the, uh, all the native Hawaiians who have walked this land before me. I'm on 10 acres here and uh, there's lots of land activity going on. So if you hear some background noise, please excuse the, all of the machinery and the mowing and all of that. Um, but just a little bit about my background. Gosh, I mean, going all the way back, I was born and raised in Montreal. I was raised by two entrepreneurs and I'm really grateful for the way that my parents held space for me to really discover who I am and who I want to be in this lifetime. And I was the youngest of four kids and I really consider my father to be a visionary. And so I guess the, the main work that I'm doing right now is really looking at how we can expand the boundaries of what we believe is possible and not just as like a catchy tagline, but actually as really truly like this is a time where we need to think out of the box. And I'm in deep leadership training for the past few years now and I'm in graduate school. And so there's this framework around visionary leadership. And I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, many indigenous cultures called ayahuasca the visionary vine. So when I give a little bit of background, I kind of like to focus on that element because in a way I feel like my whole life has been preparing me for this work that I'm doing now with people. And so that's why I mentioned, you know, my, my, I really do, do consider my father to be a visionary. I was also raised as an athlete. 
and competing sort of at a, at a young age where I had coaches teaching me about the power of your mind, the power of going inside and holding an image of enacting something as a way to embody what we want to be in our lives. And so I had that, that parallel track uh, with this upbringing where my dad would have all of these sort of grandiose ideas and he would talk about them, but then I would watch him make it happen. You know, he wouldn't just talk about the, the changes that he wanted to see. He would talk about it, but then he would go out and do it. And it was really at a time where my father really told me that whatever you see in your mind, you can make a reality. And then by the time I was about 14, 15, I had my first high dose psilocybin experience. And that's where my universe within really did open up to exponential degree. And so, and then, you know, I spent about 10 years working very deeply with psilocybin and then LSD. And then I prayed at the altar of grandmother ayahuasca. And that was about 10 years ago. And that really changed my life. And I felt like that was me arriving at the altar to receive like some level of curriculum around what it really means to be a visionary and why that's so important right now. And so that's just a, a little bit of a brief. I mean, there's so many stories that I could go into, you know, and just what it means to live in alignment with our authentic truth and what it means to you know, say, oh, okay, you know, everyone's going left, like, I'm going to check out right. What does that look like? And always just have this propensity to sort of hurl myself over the deep end to see, you know, what was that experience like? And what can that be like? And just always kind of a boundary pusher in my in my own ways. So, you know, even when I went to uh, undergrad and I studied uh, finance and business and it was like this heavy, heavy indoctrination around, you know, financial markets and economy. And, you know, it was the only thing that I thought I would study is business because I was an entrepreneur my whole life and raised by two entrepreneurs. Um, and then after that, I decided to uh, walk away, you know, and it was a real moment of courage. It was also a, a moment of breakdown. I hit a rock bottom moment in my life and I had the first sort of out of body experience. And I looked at my life and I said, you know, this doesn't have to be you and this doesn't have to be your life and you get to choose. So I actually gave away everything that I owned. I packed one backpack and I left and I never went back. And I still feel like I'm on the adventure of a lifetime. And really, you know, knowing that I was primed my whole life to go the corporate route and the business route and then decided, you know, I don't think that that is what I want my life to look like. I don't want to be in a cubicle. I want to be in a way that matches my unique signature and what my gifts are to offer. And so it's been a long journey, you know? And so I felt a, a very strong call to come to the big island of Hawaii. That's where I drank medicine for the first time. And I received a very clear vision that night to build a retreat center and that I was going to live in Hawaii and uh, have land and get married. And that week I, I met my husband to be who is now we're completing a 10 year long cycle where we're coming out of our marriage and uncoupling that union. Um, but it was very clear instruction around this vision that I received. And I just knew it in my being in my body. And then we found land, we built a retreat center and 
Um, and I guess, you know, I'll just end with the moral of that story is that, you know, you can spend all so many years and blood, sweat and tears creating something. And this is the time to not become too attached to what we create. And so we built, we spent years building a retreat center and then the volcanic eruption happened. And in two weeks, we were tearing apart the retreat center and evacuating in gas masks with feeling like we were in, you know, uh, this like war zone because the, oh, the, the earth was opening up and huge bombs were exploding with gas emissions. And we were evacuating. And while we were evacuating, you know, lava was flowing and one of the roads that was in and out got cut off, you know, it was like a very traumatic, dramatic experience. And it was at a time and maybe I'll, I, I'll just keep going and loop in this other story that I felt that this big shift was coming. And about six months before that, uh, I had done some really deep dieta work with the medicine. It was a six week period. And I just felt that my life was about to change. I, I just felt it and I knew. And then, and, and was just downloading some very powerful, I'll, I'll say cur curriculum, but just, you know, in terms of the own metamorphosis process that I was going through. And then, and it felt like the sort of precursor to what was gonna happen with the volcanic eruption. And the week before the volcano erupted, I was in a solo sit and I it was the first time, you know, I mean, gosh, I've been working with plant medicines for many years, but I could say that it was the first time that I finally understood what it meant to surrender. And I remember very distinctly, you know, really feeling like I was putting my life on the altar, on Great Spirit's altar and saying, what, what do you want to do with my life? What can I do to be of service? The world is falling apart and I have goosebumps saying that. So I always know that, you know, that it's just a powerful moment. And so I, I picked up my guitar and I just downloaded this song all in one fail swoop. And there was four lines from that song. It was called trust in the great unknown, trust that the highest will unfold, trust that the way will be shown. And you look into your hands, you hold the keys. And so the, the, the next morning, I woke up to thousands of earthquakes. And it was this huge shift in my journey it felt like I, I described it like the tectonic plates at the core of my being had shifted. And then the next morning, literally the tectonic plates underneath me were shifting and thousands of earthquakes that week. And I was in my garden and my friend ran over and said, we, you know, we had just caught word that the subdivision above our land had split open and that lava was starting to flow. And we were downstream of that. And we had some topography in our favor and luckily it did go around, but we knew in that moment that we needed to evacuate. And so the whole time it was, it was like getting catapulted into my worst nightmare. And the whole time I was evacuating, I had just those four lines from the song, just trust in the great unknown, trust that the highest will unfold. And I was already at this turning point in my life where I was feeling the call to really step out of the psychedelic closet. Psychedelics had been impacting my life on an enormous level for decades at that point. And I had just heard that Michael Pollan was coming out with his book in six months, How to Change Your Mind. 
And I was previously more in the, the publicly health and wellness space. So I had read a lot of Michael Pollan's previous books. And the moment I saw him that night, I had a, a, a dream and I was driving down the road and it was green light, green light. And that dream happens every time that I know something is aligned. And so I knew it was time for me to step out of the, of the closet and be more public about my relationship to plant medicines. And, uh, you know, fast forward uh, some months, we were in Costa Rica. I was, we were watching the volcanic eruption unfold from a distance. Someone made us an offer on the retreat center while lava was flowing less than a mile from our land and we took it. And that was the hardest experience of my life. I felt like, you know, that was birthing a project that felt a part of my body. I felt like I was like severing a limb and giving it to somebody when we decided to let it go. But it was also in deep trauma at that time. And so I went through a very dark night of the soul and I sort of hit another rock bottom moment where I didn't really have anything to lose. You know, there, I didn't have a lot of liability in terms of having a retreat center and speaking publicly about psychedelics. So I decided to really step out and to follow and trust my authentic truth in that, in that time. And it was hard, you know, it was hard. I mean, everyone's stepping out and talking about it now, but even a few years ago, like I got a lot of slack and people still do, you know, I forget, I'm sure you do too, Jason, that it's still in some circles, somewhat fringe to talk about psychedelics, although not in any of the circles that I'm sure we move in these days, but it is, you know, uh, but at that time I, I did, I got, got a quite a bit of pushback and uh, it was interesting to watch. And so I just trusted the process. You know, I had sort of grown a social media following based on health and wellness. And I, not that it matters, you know, but it, it, was, it was an interesting thing to witness, you know, thousands upon thousands of people unfollowing me on Instagram and, you know, feeling like, um, you know, just, but it was the shift. And I think that all of this was really just the precursor for what's happening. I think we're all recognizing and having to come to deep terms with our authentic truth in this time of great change. And that this, the macrocosm of the, the great transition that we're all collectively moving through right now, I hold the narrative that plant medicines are the training ground for us to learn how to make peace with this fundamental sense of groundlessness and to sit in the middle of the discomfort. And so I, I, I kind of hold that narrative that all of these years, our plant teachers have been training us and, and I've been listening and training me to learn how to cultivate resilience through times of change. And it's actually become a really big part of my message and weaving in these teachings of Eastern philosophy that really points to the fundamental nature of reality, which is impermanence. And yet we are so at fundamental odds, you know, psychologically, emotionally, biologically, you know, just want to fight against that with every morsel of our being. And it's time that we can't deny that anymore. And instead of pushing away from it and resisting it, we can learn how to make peace with it. And instead of getting pummeled by the waves of change, we can actually learn how to train our mindset. I, I call it the body, mind, heart alignment and learn how to train in this way so that we can actually catch the most epic wave of our lives rather than continue to get pummeled by them. 
And so, yeah, that's a little bit in a nutshell, you know, the stories of, of unfolding that are continuing to unfold. But I'm really, I'm really interested in, in talking about these times of change and this flux that we're all in and how we navigate that in a way that keeps us not only sane, but that keeps us very effective in influencing positive change. Yeah, beautiful. So you said you were in the health and wellness industry. What were you doing uh, prior to what you're doing now? Yeah, so uh, I have two published books and I was specializing in food addiction and um, mindful eating. I struggled with addiction in my own life, various forms of addiction. And psychedelics was very, I would say, a, a huge sort of doorway that helped me walk through and transition through where my base level of relationship to addiction was fundamentally changed. I would say the Tibetan Buddhist teachings were also hand in hand with that in terms of like effective support for learning how to stay in the discomfort. Cause I think that that's where addiction fundamentally arises from. And uh, food addiction had been a big aspect of that, a big, a big part of that and struggling with food on and off throughout my whole life. And so, but beyond that, you know, building content and other levels of, of online courses and retreats, I've been running retreats for many, many years, transformational retreats, and recognizing just how dysfunctional people's relationships are to their own bodies and to this earth. And so it was actually when I first left Montreal, I hitchhiked across British Columbia for some months and I, I met this young gentleman who picked me up hitchhiking and we just spent a day together and it was just a beautiful day but we didn't even exchange any information and then I took a one-way ticket to China and traveled all through Southeast Asia and at that time I was kind of simultaneously running away from myself and running towards myself you know trying to figure it out and six months after that while I was in Southeast Asia I bumped into that young gentleman uh, who picked me up hitchhiking and we fell in love and we spent years of our lives together and I moved home to him with him to the hometown that he picked me up hitchhiking in this small town in British Columbia and his family taught me how to grow food and homestead it was on over 150 acres and so they they taught me what it meant to live in connection to the earth I grew up in Montreal I grew up in suburbia I grew up with my relationship to food being walking up and down you know, fluorescent colored aisles with, you know, packages staring us in the face. And it's an inc incredibly dysfunctional way to relate to our bodies and to this earth. And we commune with the earth through not only the medicines that we drink, but the, the medicine we eat every day. And so it was, that was a really big part of my focus. And I actually went back to school and got a degree in holistic nutrition and then I focused uh, on writing this book uh, uh, that was really focused on a, whole, a holistic approach to helping people treat food addiction. And then Wiley, which is a large brand uh, publishing company, they reached out to me and asked me to write Mindful Eating for Dummies for their For Dummies series. And so I had trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction and a lot of Eastern philosophy and Tibetan Buddhism had really impacted the way that I had related to my body, to food, to this earth. And it was a big, a big influence and also a very strong foundation for working with ayahuasca as well. 
And then it was just time, you know, as we were running sort of public retreats under the surface, um, more on the underground, and I won't say where or when and keep all those legalities out, but we were helping, um, not, I wasn't pouring medicine, but I was helping to facilitate and organize retreats and assisting and for the people that I was working with and people that I trusted and loved the way that they held space. And so many years of doing that work underground. And then it was just that natural t transition. It was just time to, to come out and, and make it a little more public, which comes with it, you know, yeah, a lot, especially being a white woman talking about ayahuasca, you know, there, that's real. And just all that comes with that as well. So, you know, I'm just trying to do the best I can to be on this path and, and contribute to the awakening of humanity by first and foremost, just, you know, being able to learn how to sit and stay present. You mentioned these, uh, these Eastern practices, the, these Tibetan practices. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what you found through those and how those were able to help you? Sure. I mean, there's so much depth and I, I run uh, online programs for uh, leaders in the psychedelic space, these mastermind programs, and I weave so much Eastern philosophy in. It's such a perceptual lens and it kind of ties into the, the, what we understand about set and setting, you know, and, and I do really feel that so many of these teachings have so fundamentally also influenced the way that I experience psychedelic space and especially I, space journey space with the medicine and ceremony. Um, I'll give you one very particular teaching that was incredibly powerful and instrumental in my healing, especially around addiction. And Pema Chodron teaches this teaching in a, a number of different courses, um, very tied to the path of the Bodhisattva, which we, we could also talk about. And it was from her teacher, uh, Chogim Trumpa Rinpoche. And so he founded the lineage of, uh, of Shambhala lineage through Tibetan Buddhism. And it, and it was incredibly powerful. And I've listened to her audio talking about this probably 5,000 times, like just so many times that every time I listen to it, it just lands in such a level for me. And it's all about, and, and this teaching is called the, the teaching of Shempa. And so it's this teaching that, and that there's a really powerful analogy that goes with it that I can share. But Shempa is that urge. It's the way that we get hooked and sort of triggered and the way that we go into unconscious knee-jerk reactions to reach for the thing, you know, whatever that looks like. And that can take 5 million different forms. And so maybe before I, I touch on, on Shempa and that knee-jerk reaction, uh, sort of if we're looking at this as a Venn diagram, a big overlapping circle is the, the, the root teachings of Buddhism that says that the root cause of suffering is this constant desire to push away what doesn't feel good and to cling to what does feel good. The, the pleasure pain dynamic that we're in and that actually, like I said, is, is rooted in evolutionary biology. You know, we're so geared to operate in that way. And that when we start to understand this and that, you know, we do things that cause, um, that lend itself to short-term pleasure and long-term pain. And it comes back to this notion that 
we're always trying to sort of cover over this sense of groundlessness, the core teaching, the three marks of existence, one of them is impermanence, that everything is always in flux. But emotionally, we have such a hard time with making peace with that. Sure, rationally, we can sit here and say, yes, everything's always changing, the flower grows, it blossoms, it dies, how beautiful. But when we're grieving the loss of a loved one, or we're grieving the passing of a, a marriage, as I am right now, or the moving of homes, you know, it is so hard for us to make peace with transition and with impermanence in this way. And so on a very unconscious level, we spend all of our lives layer upon layer upon layer, just trying to fundamentally move away from the discomfort, the pain of feeling this, this tender, the bittersweetness of impermanence. And so this teaching of Shempa kind of links into that because something happens, you know, someone walks up to you and says, Hey, Jason, you know, you're a real jerk. And it's like that tightening that happens in the chest or in your body. It's pre-verbal, you know, it's, it's that knee jerk reaction. There's like a visceral response and then we don't want to feel that. So we move away from it. And one of the things the medicine has taught me, even on this last sit, you know, is just so illuminating, like how much the mind constantly tries to move away from the present moment. Like we are almost never present. It's very rare. And it requires so much training to sit with it. And in moments like that, where someone's like, hey, Jason, you know, you're a real jerk, like blah, blah, blah. And it's just like going off on you. We feel that you feel that in the nervous system. And there's a reaction. And so sort of the, the, the definition of an enlightened being in that moment would just be able to stay wide open, no contraction, just unbiased, attentive view, attentive relationship, mindful relationship to what is unfolding in the present moment without centralizing around a narrative of self. Okay, so it's this moment, the Shempa is the teaching that sort of, as John Kabat-Zinn would say, that leads to the whole catastrophe from that place, because we fundamentally don't know how to hold it and to stay and breathe and notice and become aware, we trigger those knee-jerk reactions. And we're actually doing this all, all of the time. We don't want to feel the grief. We don't want to feel the anxiety. We don't want to feel this flux that so many of us are in right now. We reach for the food. We reach for the, the not, not even just the food or the Netflix or the obvious stuff that we could point to, you know, the shopping and the things that give us that instant gratification. But we reach to belief systems. And we're seeing that amplified right now in a huge way. We reach to to solidification and concretization of it is this way. This is who I am. This is how I think you need to relate to me in this way. And if you don't, you're opposing my sense of identity, which is threatening because, you know, I can't make peace with the fact that everything is in motion, including my thoughts, including my sense of identity. This is a survival based mechanism but it's causing us harm. It's an incredible double-edged sword. And so there's this beautiful story and analogy that um, Chogim Trumpa talks about. 
And that was passed on to uh, Zigger Conchal Rinpoche that then Pema Chodron has taught. And it's this analogy that, that we are all like children with a bad case of scabies, scabies itch, okay? And we're old enough to know that scratching the itch is going to make it worse, but we're not old enough to, to refrain from scratching the itch. And so we have scabies and the more that we scratch it, you know, the more we reach for the food, the more we numb out, the more we drink, the more we smoke, the more we numb out with Netflix, the more we solidify into our belief systems, the more systemic it gets, it's, it creates it a worse problem. And so before you know, we're scratching and scratching and scratching. And for anyone who has struggled with addiction, which I know quite intimately in my own life, you know that feeling, You're, it's hooked. So Shempa is the urge, it's that impulse, the, oh, I want to scratch it. And you know, when this analogy really helps, because you can know that feeling of just sitting there, even for meditators, you know, the fly lands and you're just like, oh, I just want to get the fly off me. And you just have that urge to move or the urge to reach. It's the urge to move away from the present moment. Subtler levels, we're doing it with thinking all of the time. Story narratives, narratives, narratives. So we, you don't have to meditate for more than five minutes to see how much we just get on the thought train and off we go, you know? And that's a way that we move away from the present moment. And it's, and it's this way that, you know, so this, this analogy is when we're scratching, it's, it's, it's in creating some kind of immediate symptom relief. We're covering over it. So it's like allowing us to, to feel that like, oh God, this feels good to scratch, but we know it causes long-term pain. And so, and the, the real, the instruction then is, you know, the doctor shows up and says, okay, if you want to heal, this is what you need to do. You need to refrain from scratching the itch. And that means you need to learn how to sit in the middle of discomfort. And actually it gets easier over time, but we need to not scratch it to give this time to heal. And that to me in a nutshell is the fundamental way that I conceptualize how we work with addiction. And people think about addiction, I'm not just talking cocaine addiction, heroin addiction, you know, which I, I know cocaine addiction and coffee addiction and stimulant addiction and all of the things, you know, those are, are, are real deep experiences. But addiction is applicable to everyone. We're, we're all addicted to moving away from the present moment. And we're all learning now how to make peace with this sense of discomfort. And I really believe that this is what ayahuasca is teaching us how to do. And that's why, and I don't know if it's just because of years of learning Tibetan Buddhism and then sitting with the medicine and having such a deeply entrenched perceptual lens. But when I sit with the medicine through deeply uncomfortable moments and there is nowhere to run, you can't move away from it. There's ways that you can see your mind moving away from it. And I see the ways that I try to move away from the present moment. But sometimes I'll have these entire journeys, like eight hours, where it's so intense. I'm like burning in the fire of just pain. And I'm just sitting there to myself saying, just stay, 
it's okay, just stay. And it's like my mantra, I'm like holding it like right there. Just like, don't, don't go anywhere. Just hold it right here. Just stay. And I'll just use the word stay over. It's like training a puppy dog, you know? And so I do feel that that kind of mindfulness training, especially when we bring it into the everyday, you know, reality of our everyday lives, bringing ceremony into the fabric of our everyday lives, cultivating a meditation practice, we do learn how to actually make peace with this other teaching that I've mentioned a couple of times, which is this teaching of fundamental groundlessness that we are always looking for ground to stand on that. And, and again, it's so similar. It's the way that we reach for food. We reach for Netflix. We reach for the things that's us trying to reach for something solid in an impermanent reality. It's like, we're, it's like, you know, the, we're just like trying to grasp onto the straws and just trying to do what we can all the time to be like, okay, it's okay. In this moment, I got it. Like, it's going to be fine, you know, but actually we're just moving through life. And so it requires this whole mindset shift that instead of just constantly pushing away from this truth that causes an enormous amount of suffering, we breathe into it. And we actually tap into it. And we recognize that this place that is fundamentally impermanent is the source of all of creation. It is the wellspring of energy. And we can actually align our beings with that kind of energy. This is the, the notion of flow state living, which we can't always be in all the time, but it becomes a philosophy and a way of life and a way that we can use these Dharma teachings and these teachings from our plant teachers to help us let go, to help us enjoy the beauty of the ride, that there is beauty in grief. There is beauty in the sadness of letting go of something that you love. Like, you know, I just, I feel it so deeply. Like when I think about like what we let go of with the center that we built, like there's beauty in that love. And that's what we're here to do is we're here to feel it all. We're here to be human. And the more that we allow ourselves to feel that, the more enjoyable the ride is. And the more that we actually build bridges amongst so much division between humanity and people who are just fighting against each other right now. You know, we build bridges by feeling and connecting with other people in the way that they feel. And this is a huge portal of leadership training for our time. Yeah, beautiful. So you, you had mentioned you had worked with psilocybin and, and then, or, or mushrooms, and, and then you came to ayahuasca. What, what was that initial draw for you? I mean, you, you had mentioned addiction sometimes, but also, as you mentioned, the, the way we think of addiction is often very much more in the surface level of these particular substances. And yet, you know, I think as you were also alluding to, there's something much deeper underneath that, 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 that something we're all yeah. looking for to come to peace with. So um, what was, what was that, that draw and, and, and what was that like when you began working with these, these, I can't say plants because, uh, mushrooms aren't a plant, but, but mushrooms yeah. and ayahuasca, what was that experience like for you as you began to, to kind of enter this realm of, 
of something that's very different. And, and, you know, a lot of the audience, probably most of the audience has, has worked with plants. So they have some, some semblance of, of what that is, but, you know, also, as you said, there, there's a lot of circles where still in this day, that's something that's still a bit taboo. So, you know, maybe yeah. speaking to both of those audiences, people that maybe are familiar, but also people who aren't, what was that, what was that like? And, and what did that open up for you when you began to, to enter these other spaces? Yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, when I started working with psilocybin, I was just a teenager. But what it did offer me was a sense of, of really starting to ask the bigger questions. I'd been struggling with some depression in my teenage years and really starting to ask myself, why am I here? And think bigger and think, oh my God, like really just seeing the absurdity of reality and this like system and storylines that we've constructed for ourselves. And then everyone just adhering to those storylines. Oh, you need to do this. And then you need to do that. And this is the way it works. And just finding the ironic humor in that was really helpful. And just being able to have these first journeys of of really seeing that, yes, this is incredibly meaningful and important and to embrace the paradox that we're going to be dust in the wind before we know it. So, you know, do we want to spend our days laughing or crying or all of the above? And what is, you know, what is the purpose here? And to really look up at the vastness of the sky and the universe and really have those experiences. And I'll never forget that being, you know, just a young mind at that time, a very inquisitive mind, but a very young mind, I felt like was very helpful for me. I, you know, I like to joke that psychedelics hand raised me and forged me and shaped me into the woman I am today, you know? Um, but so that was a very different phase, but with ayahuasca, the first journey that I had, I just knew I was like, okay, you know, this is a new chapter. I'm entering a new domain. And I stopped working with all other hallucinogens and really dedicated myself to working with ayahuasca. It was like, okay, this is my teacher. And I felt very grateful for that sense of, of homecoming. And also I would say, you know, sort of the visionary curriculum and also a big aspect of, of medicines in general is this notion that it's amplifying subtler dimensions of reality and how everything is energy and everything is in motion, which is so much of what we've been speaking about. But recognizing I would have these experiences in the early days of working with ayahuasca that like I could almost see my thought waves rippling out, you know, through either synesthesia or just that crossing of, of being able to conceptualize energetic vibration and frequency. And, you know, it's so funny because we're in this like millennial spiritual awakening where everyone is like, raise your vibration and all of these things that I'm like, Oh God, you know, like now we can't talk about vibration anymore because of this, but you know, from a very real, like Tesla saying, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, you have to understand energy and frequency and vibration. So more from the actual scientific perspective of it. And so I, I really do feel that psychedelics are tuning us into the more subtle energetic qualities of how we live our lives. 
And just the, I just feel like so much of what I've learned in that feels like this sort of advanced training ground for, I just, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, just Jedi's for this 21st century of what it means to move through this time of change without completely losing your shit, like in all transparency. I mean, these are really trying times. And so I do feel that there is this baseline training that we can receive from our plant, plant teachers to help us navigate a little bit more gracefully. I will say a little bit more gracefully because it's pretty hard to not flail through, you know, these tidal waves of change that are coming for all of us. But, and, and so even just to take it on more like of a very practical level, you know, uh, so I have, I create leadership trainings. I'm completing my degree in a program called creativity studies and change leadership. It's a master's in science. So I've been really steeped in leadership training for the past few years. And one of the things that we understand is one of the core pillars of effective leadership is emotional intelligence. So it's interesting that when I, for example, watch professors like Richard Boyatzis, who talks about um, resonant leadership, right? He, they, they coined the term resonant leadership, and they're talking about using words and language at, at, at very mainstream, you know, Richard Boyatzis is from Case Western Reserve University. These are, you know, mainstream universities that are using terms like resonant leadership. They talk about how words create worlds. They talk about how um, emotional contagion is a real thing that as a leader, the way that you feel and the, the uh, level of, of emotional self-awareness that you have impacts other people around you and they get into the neuroscience of mirror neurons and things like that, it's obvious that the way that we feel is of course going to affect the people that we're around, but it's also this sense of subtler energy dynamics, you know, that the way that we feel creates and emits a certain level of frequency that other people can tune into. Even if you walk in a room, you know, and some intensity has been happening in that room, you can feel it, it's palpable. And so, you know, leadership training goes hand in hand to me with working with ayahuasca. And especially because there's so much that we can learn and also drawing upon the psychedelic research for example, people who journey with psychedelics tend to exhibit more empathy, more pro-social behavior, more uh, liberal views over authoritarian views. I mean, the list goes on. So we can actually leverage our experiences and, and leverage these windows of heightened cognitive flexibility, heightened mental flexibility, you know, those, those ways that psychedelics and plant medicines help to sort of shake up our neural snow globe, that sense of identity that I was talking about earlier in, from an Eastern perspective that we hold onto and cling to so readily. It helps us step out of our frame of reference. Those are windows where training for leadership is incredibly effective because there's these openings that are happening, these heart openings, these openings that allow us to feel more empathy. But if we combine that with cognitive flexibility, with embodiment practices, with understanding, how do we train for empathy? How do we train for emotional awareness, emotional self-awareness? which there are very effective trainings. How do we train for creative problem solving? 
which in addition to leadership is a very, very large focus of mine. In this past year, I've been training in uh, creative problem solving facilitation for teams. And so how can we, and, and same with, with the research in creativity, we know pre and post creativity training does make you more creative. Creative thinking is what I'm referring to. I know the creativity word is such a, a, a ginormous word that we have to really look at, but you can train people to think more creatively. And there's huge links and overlaps between uh, psychedelic experiences, especially looking at the ways that psychedelics lead to a personality trait known as openness to experience, which has a huge direct link to creative problem solving and how we think about things, stepping out of our frame of reference, being able to think bigger, lateral thinking, different parts of the brain start connecting and speaking to each other that previously weren't. There's really a lot that we can actually look at. And, and to me, this is meaningful work because we are at the 11th hour here you know, we, we, it's like, if we're not focusing on how we can find solutions to the, the, the incredible, enormous challenges we collectively face, then what are we doing here? You're the, the, I think the, the title you use is psychedelic leadership. How do you, how would you describe that to someone? I, because it, I think what you were speaking of, I think would really resonate to people like these qualities that can be cultivated through working with psychedelics and how that can translate to the, to the, the, the outward world. But how do you take and teach that to people? Are you actually like, not only in, in like a, a verbal teaching, but you're also offering them psychedelics or microdosing, or you're just taking what you've learned and applying that into like a, a business world or a, a team leadership world? What is that? What does that path look yeah. like? Yeah. So there's multiple pathways. Um, but yes. Okay. So let's just sort of start at the beginning when you asked me, what does psychedelic leadership mean to me? And that's a great question. Um, it was, it was actually a really, uh, major growth edge for me to come out with a name like psychedelic leadership. I just faced major imposter syndrome, major like, oh my God, who am I to step out with a name? This is so bold and hubris. And it, it you know, I think a lot of people, you know, so those, those perceptual illusions where there's an image and if you look at it one way, it's a rabbit. And if you look at it the other way, it's an old woman, you know, it, Psychedelic leadership is two different sides to the same coin. So a lot of people that hear that term think, oh, this is for guides and facilitators and uh, people, you know, psychedelic leadership, people who are, are leaders in the psychedelic space. But actually the initial, and, and that is largely a big part of my audience. Of course, there's a lot of people that can really benefit from the conversations that I'm having. But actually the initial impulse around psychedelic leadership was looking at quote unquote psychedelic leadership, like leadership for a new era, really looking at the hallmarks of the psychedelic experience and creating a narrative around leadership that helps us fundamentally flip old narratives of leadership completely on their head so that we can uh, lead in a new way because this is a drastically new time. And so uh, kind of 
just reiterating a couple of things is looking at these windows of, of heightened mental cognitive flexibility and looking at what the research already points to and then leveraging that. So leveraging openness to experience, leveraging uh, pro-social behavior and leveraging, uh, you know, increased empathy, increased introspection. And so my philosophy and my, my framework and my training programs really leverage what we understand about set and setting. So, you know, setting being our environment, you know, and, and the space that we move in and set as, and I was recently just talking to Dennis McKenna about this, set is more than just mindset. It's the totality of who we are. So, you know, in the literature, people say like people like De uh, Timothy Leary said, that 99% of our psychedelic experiences can be attributed to set and setting. Now, I argue that 99% of our human experience, psychedelics or not, can be attributed to set and setting. Like if you go to Burning Man versus the Amazon jungle versus on a therapist's couch, whether you're working with psychedelics and plant medicines or not, those are fundamentally very different experiences. But what we do know is that psychedelics amplify what's already there. So this is why plant medicines really help us sort of clean up our acts, you know, they help us get our, our shit together, so to speak, where we don't want to live in a way that doesn't feel organized or, you know, for people who really are on the medicine path, there's a way that we bring ceremony into our everyday lives. We build altars. We in, enjoy this path of the beauty way where we have, you know, images that that reflect back to us the meaning of working with our plant teachers for example so my my sort of larger framework is how do we bring the the, the scaffolding of setting which is really the the every our, the container of what we're moving through in our everyday lives and really leverage what we know about creative thinking for example, and about leadership and how we can work more effectively in teams to prime our experience to think more effectively. And so that's really talking to leaders of our time because a big part of the work that I do is creative thinking, creative problem solving for, for leaders, which is now being recognized as the most important uh, skill set of the 21st century. So can we combine psychedelic experiences with also training for creative thinking, for embodiment practices, for mindset training, for self-awareness, for example, meditation practices? There are so many. Can we uh, bring in this third element that is the space between set and setting, the space between you and everything around you. It's your relationship to life and the narratives that you tell and the stories you tell yourself and the process of ritual and the process of embodied cognition, how we think based on the ways that we move. And so it's really sort of like an entire life framework overhaul to step into this container for leadership training that really is looking at plant medicines and psychedelics as one piece of a much larger framework. And so just to touch on this, for example, you know, leveraging what we understand about environmental psychology subtle cues, psychedelics amplify what's already there. So it's so funny because so much of this has come through plant medicine space, but then I will learn about 
uh, creative environment. So when we talk about creativity, there's four key aspects, the creative person, creative process, creative product, like what you're creating, and then creative press, the environment. And there's this whole field of research that looks at how do we set up our spaces to help foster creativity and creative thinking. And so research that shows that, you know, this is what my view of my desk faces. So for people just listening, there's a whole jungle and a wide vista that I can see from my desk. So much research shows that windows, natural lighting, wide open spaces, good for creative thinking. You know, being in very enclosed spaces, cluttered spaces, not so great for creative thinking. They did some studies to show that uh, th these creativity tests with people sitting in a box versus people sitting outside of a box and showed that people sitting outside of the box come up with more creative ideas. It's literally trying to empirically validate the notion of thinking outside the box. So there's a big overlap between our setting and how we can set up our setting to help support open ways of thinking. We know that psychedelics help openness to new experience. That's a big overlap. We can practice meditation practices that are for example, rooted in open focus awareness. And this is mindset that's set in the setting within a training program that's the scaffolding to support our work with psychedelics on the path. So microdosing is an aspect of that. Microdosing, I think, is a very powerful tool for integration. Do I think it's necessary? Not necessarily. Do I think that psychedelics can fundamentally make you a better leader? Not necessarily. You know, they don't do anything except for show you what you can do for yourself. And so what you can do for yourself is also equip yourself with more effective training wheels so that you can embody the vision of what it is that you want to create in this lifetime. And then we have this whole you know, joy of translating and transmuting our visions that we hold and that we see in sort of the spirit realms or the quantum realms, whatever words resonate for you, and translating that into this 3D reality that we do not just for ourselves, but that we do for the benefit of humanity. And so a big sort of overarching framework uh, that I teach is what I call the path of the creative visionary bodhisattva. So the visionary part is holding a vision beyond what we believe is possible. And the creativity part is translating that into reality and what that means to be a embodiment of a creative channel. That's what I, the narrative that I hold is that I see my body as a creative vessel and that I get to be the intermediary between spirit realm and this realm that we see with our eyes. And the path of the Bodhisattva is this, is this the path of, of compassionate leadership. It's about doing this, not just for, you know, more money in the bank. You know, it's like, you can't eat money at the end of the day, that we're doing this to help literally create changes that are going to improve the way that we fundamentally relate to this earth, creating a new chapter that's rooted in equality and that's rooted in regenerative design. I mean, we have the knowledge to do that. We're just in need of a collective shakeup of our, our neural snow globe, the connective, the collective neural snow globe, I should say. 
You pointed to something really interesting uh, when you first spoke about sitting with, uh, I can't remember if it was mushrooms or ayahuasca, but you said that you had had this uh, kind of Tibetan view. And, and so a lot of what came up in your process when you sat with these medicines was also this this view that you had. And so a lot of what you were sitting with was kind of based on something that was there. And yet you also mentioned this idea that often these plants are pointing towards something like, uh, you know, these qualities of empathy or compassion, which, which I think inevitably has to begin with the self. Like we have to, we have to do our own work, find that empathy, find that compassion. And then inevitably that, that does go outward to the other. And that's where like the social aspect comes, uh, you know, about seeing, seeing how society works, putting ourselves in other people's shoes, um, you also mentioned this really interesting idea of uh, kind of these more liberal values versus authoritarian values. Um, although that's interesting because like where you're coming from in the U.S. or even where I am in Peru or all over the world, it seems like there's an incongruency there because often these very what we would call liberal philosophies are actually the more seemingly turning into more authoritarian policies as well. Um mm-hmm. But what do you what do you think that balance is? Because I think that's often a a question that a lot of people have, which is, you know, are these plants just as you said showing us what's already there, or are they also pointing towards a truth and and like a mm-hmm. maybe even the truth with a capital T that there are these fundamental things that that these plants are trying to teach us, and yet there's also these things that obviously it can only speak in a language of us, whether that's English or Shipibo or, or Mandarin or our life story, how we were raised, what we believe, our cosmovision. So do you think there's some dance between those two? And, and, and where do you see that, that coming? Because obviously with leadership, you know, I would imagine there are very fundamental truths that you know, certain leaders follow. And, and I think we can look throughout history and see certain qualities that, that leaders we admire really value things like freedom, liberty. It's, uh, you know, yeah. even, even in this, this kind of world we're talking about, this idea of cognitive liberty, but, but that also translates out into the, the, the manifested world too, you know, which is like, do, am I free? What is my freedom? And, and, and so, you know, this balance between these, these fundamental truths that perhaps these, these medicines are pointing towards versus, as you said, you know, because often, you know, something I've heard a lot is, is, you know, it's, I think it's a bad example for a lot of ways, but, you know, some people would say, for example, you know, give Donald Trump uh, psychedelics and he'll become an amazing person. Or some would say, you can't because there's already this stuff in a way, which I think is a bad analogy already because there's a lot of judgment there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of beliefs. People are actually bringing their own things and projecting it onto someone else. But, but that idea that where is that line between when we take something in, what is there? And that's only going to be amplified versus from a higher place, you know, that idea of, of as above, so below 
that these plants are pointing us towards something that's actually trying to unite. And you also used a really beautiful word, which is this idea of like building a bridge. And, and you know, some of these things I think you're alluding to are a lot of the problems we're facing are this division, this separation, this fighting, whereas, you know, seemingly what a lot of these spiritual traditions are pointing towards is this idea of union or, or, or bridge building. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, this is like my favorite kind of conversation to have. And it's such a deep can of worms. There's so much to say. And I've talked to Dennis McKenna about some of this too, you know, are they amplifying what's already there? And, and some, something that we're recognizing is, is definitely the sense of, of ego amplification. And so if Donald Trump drinks ayahuasca, is that just going to make him an even bigger egomaniac? Or is it going to humble him? You know, the way I sort of see it is that, uh, and, and again, this is just, you know, playing with, with uh, different ideas, bouncing ideas around. I, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, this is the way it is. Listen to me. This is the way it is. <laughs> uh, but I, I have this sort of sense or, or just like the way I'm relating to it in this moment anyway, is that all of these spiritual traditions point to core. I, I don't, it's like truth is such a tricky word. You know, you say truth with a capital T is love a fundamental truth. I had a conversation with someone who said, no, love is not a fundamental truth. And I was like, wow. Okay. Like not, not everyone can agree on everything. Maybe impermanence again, I'll say that's why it's only one of three marks of existence. Um, but you know, but I do find it interesting that so many spiritual traditions, indigenous cultures point to a very sort of clustering number of things. One of them being compassion, you know, and, and that there is this sense that if we go all the way to the core, that we can't sort of deny the bittersweetness of what it means to love. And, and it's funny, I've heard Pema Chodron talk about this before, that she would talk about, she, she had a, a friend who was in this state penitentiary and she would go and visit him, uh, uh, Jar Jarvis, I think his name was. And so she would go into the prisons, you know, and she would talk about even like even the hardest criminals, you know, the people that are just so hardened on the outside, you can still catch moments like glimpses of the way they might, you know, relate to a puppy in that moment, in a moment. And it might be fleeting, but it's there. And that, you know, she, she makes this joke and she often quotes Chogem Trumpa Rinpoche, who says, you know, everyone loves something, even if it's tortillas, you know, that there's someone, everyone has some soft spot. And that's the soft spot coming into the teachings of bodhicitta, which is a big part of the path of the bodhisattva. It's learning how to not harden over the soft spot, but connect to it. And I think that, again, I don't know if, if that is just such a deep part of my experience with medicine, because it was such a big part of my perceptual lens. But I do see it in so many other people who don't have a root in Tibetan Buddhism, who feel that softening, that, that sort of the defenses, the walls, the barriers. 
come down a little bit and those barriers come and that that relates to the narrative of you know defending our identity and so there is this sort of softening into the soft spot where it's also almost like an open wound where it's like if someone touches that soft spot it's like oh ow that hurts don't touch it so i'm going to build a wall around it so you don't touch the soft spot and so i think that for people maybe you know like the donald trumps of the world like i don't want to make this political statement but let's say people who are very like hard in their ways very rigid very very strong sense of ego identity um, narcissistic behavior, I would say that there's a lot of layers that really have to get peeled back. That's years and years of work, not just with plant medicines, but with daily practice, maybe even therapy, if that model resonates with you, you know, with, with like community structure, shadow work, like many, many, many layers to, to sort of pierce down to what I do think is this, you know, underneath the way I'm sort of like conceptualizing and visualizing it is just like all of these hard layers. And then underneath that, there's sort of this like reservoir of moving energy that points to more of the soft spot and compassion. And, you know, that, that movement of impermanence that is in that the knowing of the flux of life and how hard it is to actually bow in full humility at that altar of that movement of energy that inherent in that energy, we, like, we, we might call it love. We might call it also sorrow or grief, you know, and, and, and even the way that we process emotions, whether it's anger or grief, you know, so much of it is the, the narrative that we put on it. When we even go underneath the narrative, it's actually just energy in motion, you know, whether it's jealousy or arousal, you know, you don't have to look very far to see or, or feel very far to see that those are actually very, very related energetics. And that when we put down the storyline of jealousy storyline versus arousal based storyline, there's a movement of energy in the body. And so I think that there's the people who have very rigid structures conceptual structure, very rigid sense of me, sense of identity. And I think it would take a lot of work, you know, as it does, you know, psychedelics can sort of chopper you to the top of the mountain, but then you have to be very wary and careful to not fall into the erroneous belief system that you arrived there on your own. <laughs> you know, this like Zen enlightenment koan saying you know after enlightenment do the laundry so then you go back down to the bottom of the mountain and i don't think it's you know i'm not in the fundamentalist meditation camp which i've had many conversations with people with you should meditate your way to enlightenment and i think well i don't know about that i think that i think that there's some shortcuts to going to the top of the mountain looking down getting a bigger picture lay of the land having a bigger picture view of is what I'm doing down there working for me? Is it working for humanity? Is it bringing joy into my life? Is this a, a, a purposeful rather than just being so narrow focused and then going back from those wide, wide expansive experiences back down to wherever you're at in the mountain and one step at a time, maybe three steps up, one step back, you know, 
meditation, meditation, qigong, all the things, but then not even getting attached to that either. You know, it's like the way that I even position my, 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 or relate to the framework. It's like, don't, 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 uh, you know, mistake the arm or the hand pointing in the direction for the direction. Don't mistake the map for the territory. Don't look at the framework or look at me or make this about me. Like have your direct experience with reality. This can be scaffolding and you can sort of play with that leverage. But ultimately this is between you and spirit. This is between you and life force moving you through this world. And so, I mean, there's so much there, you know, is there a truth with a capital T? I mean, that's sort of the paradox of this juxtaposition that we're in right now, because reality is fundamentally what we believe it to be. We know based on the Bayesian model of consciousness, based on predictive coding, uh, you know, so much of the work that Robin Cart Harris has done in the space points to this distillation of this very pithy truth that says, we see what we believe. And I can unpack that on a neuroscientific level if we want to go there, but it's profound to think about that. And it is years of thinking about that before actually making any, having any level of awareness to implement change in a direction that says, oh, okay, I, if I want to change what I see in reality, I actually have to change what I believe to be true. And what is underneath the belief is actually neural nets or neurological connections in the mind that were mostly solidified before the age of seven, you know? So we do, I think, need a little help from our friends in terms of our plant allies to help us go in and experience these, these, these memories that reside within our subconscious and fundamentally relate to them in a different way. So we can start imprinting our nervous system in a new way. I don't think there's any one thing that is the thing. I see psychedelics as incredibly powerful tool, almost like a Swiss army knife with infinite add-ons. You know, we can have a knife can cause harm. It can kill someone. It can also carve a masterpiece and incite awe and wonder. And so it's up to us. And the greater, the, the more powerful the tool, the greater the responsibility. And so these are not to be taken lightly. And yet in the, the paradox of that is in the, the thick of how serious we should take it, we should laugh as if we're about to die because, you know, there's, there's ironic amusement in the existential crisis, as my friend James McRae would say. So, you know, it's, it's serious and not serious. It's truth and non-truth. I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the full paradox of what it means to be alive. It's the bitter and the sweet. It's the solidity of this reality and the fundamental truth of energy in motion, which points to impermanence. And so it's all a play. And how, how do we want to spend the moments of our everyday lives? You know, I know that psychedelics have helped me live into joy and live into inspiration and become more aware of the subtle frequency of what inspiration is. And allowing spirit, inspiration, inspirited 
to be able to move in a direction and then having these frameworks and these teachings and these guides and these elders to help sort of be the scaffolding to like move in a direction that feels purposeful, that feels meaningful, that feels not so serious and serious at the same time. You know, that we're here to do big work. I'm here to play a big game. I've known that since I was a child, you know, and yet I laugh more now than I ever have in my life. The weirder shit gets out there. I mean, the more I cannot help but laugh at the absurdity of what is going on right now. And I think psychedelics help us dance that fine line very, very well. You kind of alluded a couple times, like when you said we're we're kind of at the eleventh hour, and uh, you know just the current world situation we're in, this kind of crisis situation. And um, I think I saw on your Instagram that um, your your Instagram account was deleted, and uh, and then it seems like it's back. Uh, and it, you know, you also mentioned in the beginning, kind of this idea that. That when you started doing this work, it was very still taboo, and it's uh, it's obviously changing a lot. And I, I have that same experience, you know, from 15 years ago, barely anyone knew what ayahuasca was, and now it's it's very much in the mainstream culture, and things are are changing very much too. Um, but what was kind of did that have an impact for you? Because I imagine, you know, with a lot of the work you're doing it is getting more public and, and there is this acceptance and this even uh, kind of inquisitive nature about it and people are opening up and yet still at the same time, it's like there's these, you know, forces where uh, an Instagram account gets deleted or uh, <laughs> I even, you know, remembered when I started uh, posting some of these podcasts, if I use the word ayahuasca, it was flagged. <laughs> so I used the word plant medicine instead, and that wasn't flagged. And so there is this really interesting dance and, you know, even this idea of like bid, uh, bridge building, it's, you know, it's a beautiful concept. And yet it seems like, you know, a huge problem that we're still facing, which you were also speaking about is like this, people hold so strongly to these identities and these beliefs and anything that falls outside of that, you know, I mean, I think it's always been this way, but, but more and more as we can see it, as it's being brought to the surface, yeah. There's this huge resistance to, to, you know, literally take down or even, you know, beliefs, ideas to shut them down, to not talk about them, uh, which is very much this kind of authoritarian nature, uh, which is, you know, I, I think, again, counter to if, if there are things that these plants are teaching us, it's, you know, I mean, even, <laughs> you know, even that, that, that scene behind you, I mean, is there order there? Yes, potentially from, from a higher source. You know, I, I think you could argue maybe God is ordering that. And yet there's a tremendous diversity behind there. There's all sorts of plants and wildlife and they all have their own nature and they're, they're growing and they're, they're, they're doing their own dance and they have their own beauty. And, you know, and there's so much there. And yet we're also moving in this direction where it's like there's just this, this one narrative that's becoming the accepted way. And I find it this interesting juxtaposition that as we are moving in that way, at the same time, these plants seem to be expanding. So, yeah. 
I don't even know if there's a question there, but somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, here, let me say a couple of things. You know, first of all, I just am so in resonance with just the the topics that are on your heart and mind, because these are things that I love to talk about with my closest friends. Uh, sometimes I, I joke with, with, with one of my close friends, Henry, I said, you know, we should just start recording some of our phone conversation. I'll just put them out as podcast episodes um, because yeah, this notion of amplification is sort of the way that I think about it. That there's this amplification in all directions. There's this intensification going on right now. You know, you might call it like the light forces and the dark forces, and it's the best of times and the worst of times. And we're just really, I think, feeling this stark contrast of polarity and juxtaposition right now as I think we move through this portal into the keyhole sort of 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 moving into what might we might consider unity consciousness for example so wasn't it nice Jason when like it just kind of felt like before the cat was out of the bag and it was like just this kind of feeling you know I had years of that of just like wow, these psychedelic journeys are everything. And they're just kind of like my personal secret with life and with the closest people in my life. And it wasn't, you know, this platform that I'm speaking about publicly, but it was this, just this feeling that other people who knew about this secret, you know, we could connect. And it was just like this different kind of, of way. And 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 there, so there's a bittersweetness in the narrative around that for me as well, you know, that now that it's so public, there is so many shenanigans going on. And there's so many things that just make me want to be like, but, you know, like, God, is this where it's going? And, and how do we shape that? And, and I do feel like I have a responsibility to, to help do the best I can to be a centered anchor into what feels true for me and not from a place of oh i need to convince you of this truth but actually just sending a very clear signal that i have the courage because let me tell you we all know you know that if you want to step out with a message or just take a step in the direction of real authentic truth that is not a path for the faint of heart. This is the path for the courageous, the brave ones who are willing to have shit hurled at them, you know? Like, I mean, that's just real. And so uh, one thing that I, I love, are, are you familiar with uh, Charles Eisenstein's work? Mm-hmm. I, so I've, read I, a, I've, I've read a few of his uh, articles. I, I think I got oh, about great. a third of the way through his book, Sacred Economics. And okay, cool. <laughs> as far as so I got he, there, yeah. I interviewed him for the podcast and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, you know, being a popular podcast host or having a large social media following doesn't inherently make you a leader. What makes you a leader is being able to listen to a wisdom that is outside of our current prevailing belief system and follow that impulse. And I think that really hits the nail on the head with sort of summing up my life path and, and what I feel like my core fundamental message is. And so I'm also in this place and it's like, it's like this iterative process where I feel like I have to connect back to that core 
multiple times throughout the day, you know, because there's just so much coming at us in the external environment that's constantly telling us, you need to be this way, you need to be that way. It's, you know, this is what the way it should be. There's so much sort of rigidity in the conformity, less so now we're getting sort of a collective shakeup where there's more openness to whatever narratives people want to be holding, but there's also more sort of uh, hurling things between the divide of narratives. There used to be, let's say, a very cohesive narrative. Let's look back at 1960s, you know, Jimmy met Jane, they got married, they had 2.5 children, they had, you know, X amount of income. I mean, it was very cookie cutter, very narrow, like one narrative in Western culture. Now, everyone's sort of on their island, but they're like throwing shit at the person on the closest other island trying to convince other people why they need to be on their island. So there's this fragmentation that's happening, which could be a good thing if we held it in a fundamentally different way. And so that's what I feel like I'm trying to take a stand for in my life is how do I embody my authentic truth and my message? And again, have the courage to actually do that without forcing, without saying, you need to adhere to what I believe to be true and just stay open and not even within my own stance clinging to what I believe to be true, but sort of holding it with open hands, playing with it, like getting more into this dance with our belief systems. I mean, gosh, I look back to 10 years. I don't believe what I believed 10 years ago. So why should I believe that I will forever believe what I believe now? We're all evolving beings. And I think the more that we hold that sense of, container to allow what we believe to be true to evolve and to grow alongside us and to say this is important to me right now this is important and i believe that this message is helpful but you know i'm going to communicate that message with humility and with kindness and with compassion and i'm also going to communicate that message from a place of holding it lightly and knowing that it will transition and find its own time pass as well. And so I think it's a fundamental way that we can change how we choose to show up. So I don't personally, my mission isn't actually to be the person who changes the cultural narrative around psychedelics. I'm moving more in those the darker underground realms in the night, you know, where I'm working with energy and with prayer and with very powerful people who have big influence in this world. And that's where I feel like I can really support the most change on this planet, where I can work with a big part of the work I do is, is plant medicine integration, as well as, you know, microdosing and teaching these leadership trainings to very prominent people in the world. And so I think that's where I can have the most effective amount of change working with very few people and not necessarily needing to grow my audience to a million followers and have that much energy on me, but more move through the shadows of the night. And that's where I'm, I'm focused on implementing and influencing real change on this planet. That idea of prayer is really interesting. It, I mean, going back to that analogy of like the 60s when that was very cookie cutter, that was actually a really widely accepted 
belief, this idea of prayer. I think a lot of people prayed. It was, if I talked to my grandparents, you know, every night before they went to bed, they prayed. I think it was, it was a very common archetype of, of something that people did. And yeah. And then it's something I think a lot of people have moved away from and, and it, it's almost, it's yeah. left at, or it, it's seen as, is less than it's uh, we we've evolved past that, you know, very much into this kind of reductionist worldview of if yeah. I can't see it or touch it, it's not real. Um, and yet, you know, very interestingly, a lot of people who may have that belief are also very interested in plant medicine. And one of the fundamental tools of, of any cordandero or shaman is prayer. Uh, yeah. They're praying all the time. Uh, and, you know, it's very intentional. Yeah. Um, how would you, you know, it's interesting because you say like, that's, that's one of your main tools. How, how would you, how would you describe prayer to someone? Uh, because I, I think, you know, maybe people, I, I would say everyone has an idea of what prayer is, but why is that important to you? And, and how would you describe that, that process of how you work with that? Yeah, thank you so much for, for highlighting the P word. I know that not everyone resonates with the P word. And I didn't for so many years of my life. And so you kind of mapped out, you know, my trajectory, which as uh, a child, uh, my parents went through this like few years of a stint where my, my mother was raised in a very religious family. And so she was sort of outcast from her family because she wasn't following their religious dogma. And then she, what, what, you know, I'm the youngest of four kids. And when I was about, you know, six or seven or eight, uh, she kind of had a, like a homecoming to her family. And so she had this moment where she was like, all right, we're all going to church. And I hated it. I hated it. I would hide in the bathroom during Sunday school. And I was smart enough to know that I could hide and not just hide in the bathroom. I put my feet up on the seat. I would squat and sit on the back of the toilet and I would patiently wait in there. And I would rather do that than go to Sunday school where they were talking about the Bible that made my brain go like, Argh! like it just never made sense to me. And I remember that so distinctly. And I never resonated with the word prayer for most of my life until I would say I started sitting with ayahuasca specifically, where I learned what it meant to me to pray and to not just pray, but walk in a prayerful way and live in a prayerful way. And so the way I conceptualize prayer now is not you know, sitting at my bed on my knees and praying to God. It's about this relationship to the life force that moves through all things, which is actually a very shamanistic view of reality, you know, an animistic view of reality. So it's more of a focusing of mind where I think it was like one of the very first times I really distinctly felt that we needed a miracle to happen. We had just, uh, you know, started this land project here in Hawaii and I, we started with nothing. And I needed a miracle to happen because I was holding this vision of creating a sanctuary for healing to take place. And I was in ceremony and it was this moment of just, the, it was almost like the seas parting, you know, and just like, 
having this clear, it was almost like I was whispering into the source of all of creation. And, and again, my conceptual framework of, of Eastern philosophy is such an impact where there's almost like in my mind, just these at the source of, of where everything emanates from, you know, Wayne Dyer was also a big impact in my life. I read uh, the power of intention when I was, I think 18 or 19. And that had a big impact in the way that I conceptualized this, you know, this notion. And it's also what quantum physics says. And it's also what many curanderos say about the spirit realm. I met this, this uh, uh, he was Ecuadorian shaman, and he would talk about how, no, you go into the spirit realm and you pray, and then you watch it happen in the physical realm. I mean, that's very much what Einstein said, that the, that the uh, wave, that the, the uh, wave is the soul governing particle, uh, soul governing agency of the particle. You know, he said that the, the space around the particle is the sole governing agency when we get into Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic fields. So there's this notion that there's this spirit realm and that there's actually, so prayer for me is this way that we move more fluidly between the spirit realm, the quantum realm, the dimension of the unseen for which I believe, and I'll hold that lightly, that everything emanates from, that, that it's a very high frequency realm and that energy coalesces and condenses. You know, when you look at quantum physics at the quantum level, uh, energy moves at millions of hertz per second. It's very, very high frequency. And that when we look into the solid, what we can see, this realm is a very slow moving energy. And I think that our consciousness influences what coalesces. It's the process of alchemy. It's the process of transmutation. It's the process of, in a very concrete way, having an idea and making that idea a reality, thinking about writing a book and then holding that book in your hands. And so for me, it's more, you know, if the word prayer doesn't resonate, it's like channeled intention. It's like unbroken focus where you are holding such a clear intention that you're emitting such a clear frequency that other, there's just other ways that, um, you know, gosh, for, for lack of a better term or, or a back or better way to say it, that it tunes into and coalesces around what is going to allow that, that frequency to transmute into reality into this way. So it's this bridge prayer is this bridge. And actually I was also, you know, I've been a little hesitant to talk about prayer and use the prayer word. And I don't know if you know, Jyoti Ma, who's the one of the 13 grandmothers and I love her so much. She is just such a wise elder. And I invited her recently. I just released the episode today on the podcast to come. I wanted her to talk about prayer. And she's one of the elders that I respect so much. And we ended up talking about prophecy and prayer and truth and authenticity and how so much of what we're talking about here, just in a little bit of a different reference frame, you know, this notion of, of living in alignment with our truth and having the courage to do that. And that's authentic living. And we receive guidance on the path by having some kind of communication with spirit guides, with animal guides, with great spirit, 
with the unseen force that moves through all things. And I don't think that we can deny that there's a force that moves through all things. And that is what allows us to be animated and to be human. And the fact that you're conscious and I'm conscious, and we've created this dialogue through technology. I mean, it's pretty mind blowing if you really think about it. And so how can I lean in to having a dynamic dance with this co-creative force in reality. And if nothing else, we know that the stories we tell ourselves influence our lives and the narrative of prayer works for me rather than against me. So I'll just take it just even on that base core fundamental principle that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And so if I tell myself a story that I'm in dynamic dialogue with my guides and my animal spirits and with the life force moving through me, that makes for an interesting chapter in my life. And I'm playing with that and it feels really good and it feels meaningful and it feels purposeful. And I think that's what we're all here to do is just find whatever's meaningful and purposeful for each of us. So just on that principle, it's like play with it and see what happens. But, oh, oh, Jason, I do want to, I want to share that, that moment uh, in that ceremony, I I derailed there because I I got excited, but uh, I had this moment in, in an ayahuasca ceremony where I prayed for a miracle and it was just this sense of unbroken focus and just holding such a clear channel of a vision that wasn't for me. It was so much bigger than me. And then the next day, I ended up, anyways, that week, I ended up selling one of my first online brands that I built before my health and wellness brand. I built my first brand to about a million and a half people on Facebook. And uh, once I hit about a half a million followers on that Facebook page, I just got so many messages. So years went by where I never opened up any of my Facebook messages because it was just overwhelming. And then after that ceremony, I just got this intuitive hit. And I literally opened up the Facebook page. I clicked on the messages. I scrolled down and there was a message from this company that said, we want to buy your Facebook page and buy your brand. And by the end of the week, I had six figures in my bank account and we built the retreat center. And it was from that ceremony that I was, and I'm not saying go out and pray for money. Like this is not what I'm talking about. I was praying for the fulfillment of the, the culmination and the fruition of a vision. And I needed money to help me do that because I was holding this multi-million dollar vision and making, you know, hundreds of dollars a month. And so that, that, that seed money allowed us to build the retreat center. And because of that, hundreds and thousands of people, thousands of people came through and we ended up tapping into hot water and that water flows at 111 degrees. And so many people came through that place to commune with that water, to find healing in our gardens. And we would witness people crying in our gardens because it was a homecoming back to themselves and back to this earth. And so I believe that prayer gives us that extra sort of wind under our wings, you know, under our sail especially when we're holding that vision that moves us towards action and that inspires us to take action in a way that makes us come alive. And that's what I think we're here 
to fulfill. That's the kind of destiny that I think we're here to fulfill. I'll, let's not get into dissecting destiny uh, because that's a whole other one. But that's what I feel like is our, our, you know, our purpose of being here is to dance and play and coalesce these energetic forces. And how do we shape that into something meaningful? And it's the medicine that teaches us there's more than the eye can see. There's just, there's more. And you know that, we know that, that there is, and shamans know that, you know, the shamanic perspective is there are unseen dimensions and we can learn how to navigate through those dimensions. And that's a big part of the curriculum that I feel like I've received from the medicine. When you were speaking, it reminded me of, of this quote, because you're speaking about truth and courage. And there's a beautiful quote, I think it's by Schopenhauer, and he says, uh, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's uh, laughed at or ridiculed, then it's violently opposed. And then finally, it's accepted as if it was truth all along. And, and I think so many people, you know, when we look at this, this world made manifest and we look at these things that we call truth, we forget that at one point they weren't truth. And the people who spoke up for those were actually considered heretics and they were violently yeah. uh, opposed. And, you know, all of these people, like you, you mentioned uh, uh, Einstein and, you know, Isaac Newton. I mean, these were very religious people. I mean, uh, Newton, he was very into the esoteric world and masonry and, and studying these esoteric traditions. And, um, you know, it, it's an interesting thing because, you know, in this time of change, there is like, we have access to all of these, all of this information and all of these different traditions. And, and, you know, I think one thing when I was listening to the, the podcast with Mike, uh, you know, you were saying this other phenomena, which is happening is like, we really like to compartmentalize things like, well, you know, ayahuasca comes from here and therefore it can only be worked with there. And, you know, there, there's, there is a truth to that. Like all things have a place, all things have a history. And it's super important to, to, to honor that and to name that. And yet in a way that's a very limited thinking because all things change, you know, as you said, impermanence is the constant <laughs> principle. And, you know, none of these cultures or traditions are permanent. They're constantly changing. They're constantly adopting and growing and discovering. Um, so what do you think, you know, in, in this idea of psychedelic leadership, you know, everything that that's being like brought to the surface, all of these traditions. And, you know, even here we're speaking about uh, Tibet and ayahuasca and mushrooms and uh, you know, quantum physics. And how do you see all of that kind of coalescing and, and, and emerging into something new? And, and it, I, I would imagine, you know, I was going to ask you, do you think that's important? I, <laughs> I imagine I already know the answer to that, but why do you think that's important? Because, you know, in a sense, all of these traditions are important and it's vital that we don't forget them and understand where they came from. And yet at the same time, you know, there's that quote from Einstein, like, as long as we're operating from the same realm of consciousness, we're never going to solve a problem that's existing yeah. in that realm of consciousness. Like we have to change, change and evolution is the, the only constant. Like if we don't evolve, then we enter the state of entropy, which is correlated to death. Like, so the only way to grow, the only way to live is to change, yeah. is to grow, is to evolve. And so much of that 
Um, I've mentioned this a few times and I, I won't go too much into it, but there's a, there's a beautiful man who I, I, I really uh, love. And he, he comes from this uh, group of people called the Tubu and the, the Amazon. His name is Amika. And uh, he, it's very interesting because in their lineage, uh, they talked about this story called the Diro Amasa, which is the children of the new dawn. And uh, as a child, he would hear like his grandfather's telling this story or his grandmother's and he'd say, well, this is ridiculous. You know, there's, <laughs> you know, cause they were saying like, we're going to be wiped out. There's going to be this, this new era coming and everything's going to change. And, the, the, the wisdom keepers will be the people who can actually draw the medicine from the four directions and, and honor that, you know, but in that honoring of, of, of these traditions of the four directions, actually creating a new Maloka, which is a representation of, of the ceremonial house, but it's also a representation of, of, of the, the world and the universe. So it's, you know, literally creating a new earth, creating a new universe. And that, that it's going to be those people who are able to, to bridge all of these things, to take these ideas. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the, you know, kind of subtly, some of the things we were talking about, a lot of these forces, it seems like they're really trying to compartmentalize things like, well, this is this, and therefore it can only be this way. You know, maybe your skin color is this, therefore you can only do that. Or your religion is that, therefore you can only do that. Or your country is that, or this is that. And, and that becomes very limiting. And, and, you know, that is that process of entropy and the process of growth and evolution is expanding out of that, you know, moving beyond that, not forgetting about it, like in that story of Amika, like honoring those four directions, but from that being able to create something new. So, and, and I imagine the, these plant medicines are, are going to be a huge part of that. So do you have a sense of, 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 of like how that can come together and, and, and a direction that that's moving in that, that will actually, in a way, like fulfill that prophecy, which, you know, even if you're not indigenous or you don't believe in that prophecy, I think a lot of people have that internal resonance that, like we are in a time of change and something needs to change in order for us to grow and to evolve yeah. and to, to come together as, as an earth, you know, not, not necessarily as, you know, I am this person, I'm that person, but, but beginning to, to unify all of that. Yeah, I know it's a big question again. <laughs> I know you like all the big questions. Well, uh, and again, it's something that I've spent many hours, you know, really talking about with my friends and, diving into and uh, do you know I'm sure you know Carlos Tanner from the Ayahuasca Foundation yeah yeah we we talked uh quite a while ago he was one of my first guests yeah oh great yeah I love Carlos he was on uh the psychedelic leadership podcast as well and we were kind of joking about this too it was like you know and this is kind of the way that okay, on a certain level, we can say okay that makes sense you know the stories that I tell myself are you know the the identity that i build and it's also becomes the way that we operate in this world and so there are certain stories that are uh people are clinging to as truth and i just invite inquiry as to says who truth according to who and I'm amazed that you actually said that whole, you know, intro to this question without using the words cultural appropriation, which I'm so grateful that you didn't, because 
it's such a trigger and buzz, you know, trigger for a lot of people right now. Um, and, and when I talked to Carlos about this, this same similar question, although you did a much more elegant job at framing it and the, the lead up to it, but we were joking about it. You know, he has worked with one teacher for about 10 years and he's like, I mean, tradition changes and that, you know, he's watched so much change happen in even a one decade span with the teachers that he's worked with. And then, okay, you know, are we going to start pulling the, the hairs apart on, yes, there is indigenous cultures. I take a stand for uh, fundamental equality. Like that's what I want to see on this planet. So I don't want to see, you know, cultures being run out of their homes and villages being torn apart because pipelines are starting to go through or that, you know, Western capitalism is taking advantage of the Amazonian uh, pharmacopoeia that lives in the jungle. You know, I, I want to see reciprocity and I want to embody respect and I want to see people embody a sense of respect, which is, I think, to me, the new way forward. And that where we're still arguing in these places, I mean, lots of people aren't embodying respect for ancestral wisdom. You know, I live in Hawaii. There's been this plant medicine here for many years, large part, Terrence McKenna, other people, plants have been traveling all over the world for a long time. If someone wants to hold the narrative that that is wrong and that because I'm a white woman and I'm working with plant medicines that are in my local environment, that that is wrong, then we also have to look at all the other ways that plants have traveled all over the world and wrong according to who, okay? And for me, this is, again, it's so tricky, you know, and I'm not an expert on this topic of, you know, cultural appropriation. And, and we are in this interesting juxtaposition between honoring the old and making space for something radically different. We need something different, obviously. You know, the way things are going are not working clearly. So, the in-between point of that juxtaposition for me is again, authentic, truth, humility, kindness, respect. So I don't have to take from a culture, you know, I'm creative human being. I can cultivate my own rituals and cultivate a direct relationship with plant teachers that are directly instructing me. And yes, do I want to be in communication with teachers who have vastly more experience and wisdom and knowledge and an unbroken lineage for thousands of years to help support me? Of course, of course. You know, and when we start looking at like, well, what does it mean to embody respect? What does it mean to embody reciprocity? You know, I think we all have to find what's true for us. But I think we also need to remember that we are all indigenous to this planet and that we are creative by definition of being live, that we all have ancestry that roots back to shamanic type practices, whether that's prayer, whether that's ritual, ritual practices that incorporate altars, that incorporate fire, you know? So we can either look back at our own ancestral lineage and I recently actually just found out that my great, great grandmother is a First Nations uh, from Canada. She's Aboriginal to Can Canada. 
and she it was from the Mi'kmaq tribe. And so I've been doing more research about that. And I was like, okay, that's interesting, you know, that we all have some degree of indigenous blood and that we need to be mindful about what we're choosing to fight over right now. So I don't want to fight against social justice warriors that tell me what I'm doing is wrong because you know what, the chances of me convincing them otherwise uh, and seeing the, the uh, sort of um, the, 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 the double standard that's being held right now. I had someone attack me online for cultural appropriation who is a blonde haired kid who lives on Maui, who's from California and has the Hawaiian word pono tattooed to his knuckles. I think that we have to be mindful of, you know, how easy it is to fall into double standards and to uh, see the irony in all of it. And so I just try to do the best that I can to embody reciprocity. Uh, it's a big reason that I'm launching my nonprofit called Grow Medicine. And that's, I've mentioned before we started recording that I was just on a call with Matthew from Temple of the Way of the Light, because we're looking at supporting some of his initiatives, his nonprofit initiatives. And so, you know, this whole notion of I've had a lot of time and I still will continue for many years of my life to ask myself, well, what does it mean to embody psychedelic leadership? And what does it mean to embody humility and respect and reciprocity and take a stand for accessibility? That's a huge issue. And I, I was raised by parents who never was a skin color, an issue in our family, in our narratives. My, I grew up in Montreal. It's a cultural soup. My best friends growing up were, you know, were black and yellow and, you know, all the colors, you know, Asian and Greek. And so that was never my perceptual lens, you know? And so I was raised by parents who taught me to believe in equality and, you know, Canada, I feel privileged to come from Canada where I had a free education, you know, free education and got a university degree for practically nothing. And, and I want to see a world based on more principles of equality. So, you know, applying the, the creative problem solving process to this very big challenge of why are more people in Western medicine culture not embodying reciprocity? and started identifying some key challenges and hurdles to overcome that one, a lot of people don't know how to give back. They don't know where to do it. Some organizations that are coming out with uh, very sort of non catchy names, they have branding issues, they have, you know, issues of being able to to reach a mainstream audience and, you know, bless their efforts. And so what I have really just come in to do is build an app that partners with these very reputable organizations that are already doing really good work on the ground. And that after people, um, after people have a journey, whether it's with ayahuasca or iboga or 5-MeO or psilocybin, uh, that you can open the app, click on the button of what you just consumed and it goes towards a partnering organization that helps go back to indigenous cultures and that it's not just about a Western mentality of we need to grow medicine to meet rising demand. It's about, oh, these medicines come from a lineage rooted in ancestral wisdom. And medicine has grown within a dynamic relationship amongst community, between people and the earth, 
that there are, you know, other relationships involved in the growing of medicine. Water isn't necessary for human life. So grow medicine is sort of the entry point to educate, educate people about that and to make it uh, catchy in a way that will can have the potential to go mainstream. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we're coming up in two hours. Um, the, the one other question I wanted to ask you about, uh, you mentioned it earlier, was about integration. And, and that's uh, that's often a really big topic in, in this kind of plant medicine world about people come and they have these really amazing experiences, often life transforming, and they have these realizations. Uh, also, not to set that as an expectation, because that's not always what happens. Yeah. It can be very subtle work. Uh, often, you know, people um, go back and often like things fall apart. That can also happen, that kind of like dark night of the soul. And people, these often like bring up a, a lot of things like you were mentioning, like these belief systems, these ways we've been out of alignment and, and we're really shown those. And uh, so, you know, this idea of, of integration is is often a really talked about uh, a big part of, of this work. So what is that what does that mean to you because you you say you you do integrative work so what yeah. does that mean and 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 ha- like are there are there best practices or, or things you've seen in your work that can really aid people in in taking that work that they've done and and integrating that back into their lives yeah i mean it's also such a huge question but again it's really looking at sort of the scaffolding and looking at set and who we are within the movement of our environment and how we can start making changes on in those two sort of respective uh, dynamics and so again i think it's really helpful as this sort of companion guide on the path is looking at very powerful wisdom teachings. So the Eightfold Path can be a really helpful, uh, you know, that's a a, a popular Buddhist teaching um, that many people are aware of. And one of the core of that is, and as you said, you know, some people come out of their experiences and they go through a dark night of the soul and that needs to happen. So how do we hold space for sitting in the discomfort? for having someone that can just be present with you. And that's really the training of what it means to be a bodhisattva is to be able to comfortably sit in the dark with someone else who's sitting in the dark without you know, freaking out, but just being able to hold clear space. And so being able to, yeah, just be a loving presence and a hand for people who are moving through huge realizations. Wow, I just worked for a corporation for 20 years that I don't believe in that's a lot to actually make peace with and to have someone that can hold space for that kind of process who understands these portals of of transition that psychedelics can sort of thrust us through and to embody practices so working with people very much so around narratives around mindset but also a very i have a very strong somatic orientation to the work that I do with people, a lot around embodiment practices, um, a lot of leadership training as well. And, and looking at, you know, whether people are in leadership positions or not, everyone can really benefit from these kinds of frameworks in terms of, you know, at the very least, you're leading a party of one, you know, having emotional self-awareness is helpful if you want to have any level of influence on this planet. 
And so most of the people I'm working with are in power uh, positions of influence and looking at how can we help integrate these psychedelic experiences into that path to influence more change, not just for, you know, on big scales, but even immediate, you know, watching people go through really big changes on a very personal level in their marriages, within their families, after they come home from an ayahuasca experience and they're recognizing that they have to change the way that they relate to their children. You know, these are big, big, big changes and they don't happen overnight and they take time. And so the framework and the, and the, the support, you know, it's sort of like the nest, creating a nest for someone to crawl into and to be able to go through these, these processes of change of, 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 you know, metamorphosis of transmutation and to know that, you know, they're, you do move through the other side and then to start building on that, you know, and to start leveraging that and also being aware of the things that we need to be aware of, you know, um, ego inflation, impulsivity, uh, excessive risk taking. These are things uh, that, you know, because I work so much with people in the entrepreneurial space, um, you do need to be very mindful, know how to pick up on those signals. Um, and then also how to manage it and support people when they're going through these very expansive phases. And then that sort of that the afterglow kind of wears off. And then there's like this new sort of baseline low that they need to build on, you know, and those that's, that's where the real work starts to happen. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to touch on that we didn't get to? Um... If you'd like to support they were in the, if initial pre-launch of, of Grow Medicine, you can go to growmedicine.com. That's my baby that I'm birthing out into the world. Uh, and it's still, we're, we're still finalizing our partnership agreements. So that's just the pre-launch page. Um, and if you have a large following and you would like to help be a part of the, the week launch that we're going to be putting together quite a lot of people who are stepping out with this message to support plant medicine conservation and sustainability and reciprocity and accessibility that these are big things that we need to be taking a stand for right now. So that's a, a huge primary way. Um, but my home base is livefreelauraD.com. And that's getting a pretty big overhaul right now. And as you mentioned, um, I have the psychedelic leadership podcast. And um, for people who journey on their own, I have some fun freebies like a few, I have four different playlists for psychedelic journeys. One of the playlists is very ayahuasca oriented. And I also have a free eight day microdosing course that people can tune into if they're, you know, in the entrepreneurial space or the leadership space. And they're wondering, okay, how do I get started with microdosing as a tool for integration? Uh, that's a great place to, to start out. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'll have to check out the episode with the, uh, the, the grandmother. I was going to interview uh, someone else who was part of that project. Uh, it's probably coming up in the next month or two. And uh, yeah, I'd also love to tune in to the one with Carlos. I, I like Carlos a lot. So it's, it's always interesting to hear uh, his perspective on things too. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. It's just been such a pleasure. I really love your thinking and your frameworks too. And, and just the questions that you brought to this conversation just felt very alive for my heart. So thank you so much for all that you do in the space that you hold. And yeah, just such a pleasure to connect with you. 
Well, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And uh, yeah, I hope people reach out to you and, and support that project. Because I, I think that is a really important thing and, and a, often a, a very overlooked thing. And I think it, it's something that, that a lot of people are often looking to do. And as you said, they don't really know how to go about doing that. So I think that's, yeah. a, that's a beautiful idea. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. All right, everybody, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura. Uh, I enjoyed talking to her, catching up, getting to know her a little bit. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can sign up, uh, and it gives you back some really nice added benefits, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I, I deeply appreciate it. And if you are able to do that, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, so thank you all for all the support. Um, if you are not able to do that, as always, subscribing to the show is a really big help to get the show out to a bigger audience. So if you're looking on this on the YouTube channel, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bells, liking the videos may seem like a small thing, but it's a really big help. Uh, and if you're listening on the audio version, uh, similarly, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, uh, following the show, and then if you can go on Apple Podcasts and leave a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help to everyone who has done that. Thank you very much. Uh, my next guest coming on... Um, uh, Geronimo, who is uh, one of the guys who works with uh, ICERS, uh, which is a big uh, organization that works to help preserve and work with plant medicines. They're based out of Barcelona. Uh, he's a really interesting guy. He'll be coming on. Um, I have a guy coming on to speak about essential oils, who's a really interesting guy. And, um, and I think after that, uh, Jeremy Narby is coming on, who uh, you may know of him. He's an anthropologist. He wrote a, a really popular book in this world called The Cosmic Serpent, and he just wrote a new book on uh, tobacco and ayahuasca. So uh, really looking forward to all three of those conversations. So thank you all for the support. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you all on the next one. Doom.